It's been great, hasn't it, looking at the videos and connecting with our community and seeing what they're uh, believing and feeling about uh, faith. And I think the team have just done a fantastic job going out onto Lewisham and connecting uh, with the community. And as we could see in our community, some people believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Others, um, nah, no chance. And I guess what we're asking today is, what, what do you think? What do you uh, uh, believe? Um, before I get into that, I just want to I'll make a few comments on a conference that I attended uh, a few uh, weeks ago. Deb and I, uh, uh, my wife, attended a conference in Turkey, which was, actually I was involved in helping host the conference. It was the gathering of uh, the family of churches we're a part of. Uh, there's two parts of the conference. The first was the kind of senior leadership of New Frontiers, the apostolic leadership. There was about 20 couples there representing hundreds of churches from all over the world, from Central America through America, Asia, down into Africa, just, just, just all over the place. In fact, our worship was led by a guy uh, based who lives in New York and uh, another guy who lives in Moscow. So that was just fantastic to have New York or Moscow leading uh, uh, the worship. And then the second part of the conference was about 180 people there where people who were looking into New Frontiers and uh, on teams caring for churches. was there. It was actually quite moving at times, hearing of people who are serving God in really demanding contexts. It's a quite, I, I always come back feeling quite shallow <laughs> when you hear of people who have been followed by the police or their life is a threat or there's just a clamp down on the church and you think, gosh, uh, I wonder how well I would do. And uh, so it was uh, uh, very encouraging, though. Overall, the movement we're a part of has gone through massive uh, transition from its founding father. Five years on, I find it sort of finding its feet again, and uh, that's uh, very encouraging to see. Deb and I spoke on a seminar about leading a balanced life. Um, All the people we're speaking to were full-time pastors and leaders or those that care for pastors, Uh, and so that was... uh, Quite an audience, a bit threatened by that, but we did our best and seemed to be well received. We're speaking to ourselves that we run this race well. And Andrew Wilson spoke on a, a subject of ethics. His seminar had a load more people than ours, but we weren't threatened by that and we're just getting used to it, you know, uh, as he's such a gifted um, uh, communicator. And so I came back very encouraged by the conference. And uh, so you know, Deb and I, this time in two weeks' time, will be in Cape Town. I know it's tough being the pastor of this church. I can see, I can see just the kind of empathy and the prayer power that is really I'm drawing on. Uh, but we're going to Cape Town, which is a beautiful city, uh, visiting a church called Jubilee there. Has uh, got a close friendship with Steve Van Ryan, who's the leader of that church. He's spoken here. And if you remember, if any of you know Lex, he's one of the elders in the church there. We'll be worshipping with them on the Sunday. We fly out two weeks' time, on the Saturday through the night. Uh, and then uh, on the Tuesday, I'm spending a day with their eldership team to talk about multi-site. So I'll be talking about you again. Uh, and then we fly up to Harare on the Thursday to spend a really busy weekend with River of Life Church there. That's Scott Marks. Remember Scott? And Rene, who leads the Ebenezer Project out in Zim, will be uh, in Harare. Phil and Sarah Verley will be joining us before they fly on to a church plant in Nairobi in Kenya. Uh, 
uh, and the weekend we spend time with their elders and wives through the Friday and Saturday and their staff team. Then I'm preaching five times on the Sunday, so just a normal Sunday for me. Uh, And then we fly back out Monday and arrive back in Tuesday. So I value your prayers for that. It's a real privilege to go to these places. Zimbabwe, I mean, it is, you know, I saw Scott in Turkey. I said, what's it going to be like in four weeks' time? He said, I don't know. Uh, They're just, if you follow the, the political scene, they're just thinking of printing bonds, which could lead to hyperinflation. So they honestly makes Brexit look like a walk in the park. Uh, so um, do pray for that nation, and if you do, pray uh, for us. Okay, all right, well, we've got a good one today. What happened at Easter? I was very happy when I got this part of the series, uh, and I'm going to root it in Scripture. I'm going to start with Romans 1, uh, and uh, Romans is, as you will know, is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church he'd never visited And as in the style of the day, what he's going to do is introduce himself and then he's going to summarize up front in the first few verses or first few sentences of his letter the purpose and the content of the whole letter. So if you get verses 1 to 6 of Romans 1, you really get the heart of what Paul is writing to this church in the kind of capital city of the world of the day. So let's read it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly light was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Christ. So we're going to look at the resurrection. And as the scripture says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. And actually, we are to be pitied. If you're a Christian here, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, you're pitied. That's not just what our culture is saying. That's what the Bible says. Oh man, all the money you give, all the time you uh, spend, all the singing we've done this morning, it's just a waste of your time. Because Jesus is still in the grave. Uh, And so if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, you you should listen up. Uh, But if he is, you should also listen up. And that's what we're going to look at uh, today. And in this series, based out of Andrew's book, we've been on a journey. We started way out there with questions like, how do you know anything? Well, you know through evidence and explanations. And then we looked at, well, how did we get here? And we looked at, did we, have you got faith in chance? Or have you got faith in a creator? I enjoyed that week. By the end, I was thinking, God, I'm so glad I got faith in the creator than just chance. Um, Then Phil spoke on, well, if there is a God, then are miracles possible? Andrew came back in and said, well, what's wrong with the world? And he summarized it brilliantly as human evil, the, the rotten things people do to each other, and natural evil, uh, like... Hurricanes or earthquakes. Uh, and really said that the real issue about that is that innocent people get killed by natural events. And so he concluded saying that the real issues that the world face are sin, human evil, and death. And posed the question that lines up well with Christian thinking. And then last week we looked at, well, what is the solution? We need a solution which uh, provides forgiveness 
provides transformation, that provides the resurrection of the body and ultimately the resurrection of the world. Uh, and I thought Andrew brilliantly picked up that people's on the videos gradually they're they're, they're really good at the sort of the, the top end of the questions, but when it comes to the problem and the solution to it, their, their suggestions were weak um, because there is a massive problem and it needs a massive solution. Uh, in fact, I believe it needs a solution that comes from God Himself. Such is the scale of the problem. And that's what Christians believe. That's what we believe, that there is a solution. It comes in God himself coming to earth, uh, and it can only be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it is the only holistic solution to the world's problems that's presented, that's out there. Okay? And that's when we gather, when we get together, that's why we sing about Jesus, don't we? And we sing songs, it's all about you, Jesus. Yeah? It's not about me. Yeah. Start saying. I mean, lots of people sing. I was singing yesterday. I went to see Crystal Palace lose to Liverpool. Four lucky goals. Uh, and uh, we're all singing away. And we're all glad all over at the palace we are until we let a goal in. So lots of people sing. But when we sing, we sing about a person. We sing about the person of Jesus. Who came, God came, to provide a way for us to know God. So what I'm going to do is, uh, I'm going to say, it's just a two-point sermon today. In fact, I, I really was asked to speak on the resurrection, which I love doing. I preached on the resurrection the last four Easter Sundays, so it was a joy. But I couldn't resist a bonus, okay, which comes out of the passage I read. And so I'm going to speak quickly on his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and his resurrection. Because what you have in Jesus is basically, he, he pulls this whole book together. He takes the whole Old Testament history and salvation history, and it kind of focuses it in right into the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospels. And then you've got the resurrection, which shapes uh, and is foundation for the whole rest of the book. And he's the central figure in uh, history, and he pulls both old through to his coming and now um, post resurrection until he comes again. So, Old Testament uh, prophecy and then his resurrection. The thing about Old Testament prophecy is, I think, alone, this, if, this, if this alone, let alone all the evidence of the resurrection, would make you, for me, believe in Jesus. Um, because what the Old Testament was looking to someone, a person coming who would be a Messiah, he, first he had to be in the line of David. We saw that in Romans 1. So he had to line up his kind of birth line. So he had to kind of get in. So you've got to work out, if you're going to be the Messiah, you've got to be born in the right family line. That's quite difficult to do. Don't have a lot of control in that. Uh, but Jesus did that. That's why in Matthew's Gospel, the genealogies are there to show. Why, why does a book start with all these funny names? It's because it's showing that Jesus came in the line of David. Because God had promised to David that there will be someone on their throne forever in his line. And God is not one to break his word. And so Jesus comes, he lines up in the birth line. Uh, and then there's loads of prophecies about Jesus' death. Uh, Isaiah 53. Or go home and read Psalm 22. I love Psalm 22. Most people jump to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But Psalm 22 is worth a read because it talks about people throwing dice for his cloaks. I mean, it's just uh, I'm totally talking about the crucifixion. Yeah, have a read. And it even talks about where he's going to be born. 
Micah 5 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrahath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose oranges are from of old, from ancient times. And Jesus himself uh, not only uh, fulfills, I mean, it's very difficult to work out where you're going to be born. Um, you don't have no control over that. But also Jesus, he makes claims about himself. He claims to be God. I mean, he goes around and says, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the Messiah. And John 2 uh, puts it this way. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll rise there again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build the kind of temple with bricks and mortar. Uh, but you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Um, Nicky Gumbel, in his book, The Questions of Life, summarizes it better than I can. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies spoken by different voices over 500 years, including 29 major prophecies fulfilled in a single day, the day he died. And although some of these prophecies may have found fulfillment at one level in the prophet's own day, they found that ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I suppose it could be suggested that Jesus was a clever con man who deliberately set out to fulfill these prophecies in order to show that the Messiah foretold, to show that he was the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. The problem with that suggestion is, first, that the sheer number of them would make it extremely difficult. Secondly, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of the events. Uh, For example, the exact manner of his death. Uh, which was foretold in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, the place of his burial, and even the place of his birth, Micah 5. Suppose Jesus had been a con man wanting to fulfill all these prophecies. It would have been a bit late by the time he discovered the place in which he was supposed to have been born. I mean, just that alone. If you're not a, a believer here, and you're coming, and you're kind of, sometimes you're not even sure why you're here, but you're here. Look at the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It will give you great confidence that Jesus was the person he said he was going to be. But anyway, that was really by for um, a bonus, a starter for 10. Um, his resurrection. He was proved with power to be the son of God, Romans 1 says, by the resurrection from the dead. Let's remind ourselves of the scene. Jesus has turned up. He started his public ministry at 30. It's not very old, is he? And he just preaches for three years. That is a very short campaign. Yeah. Uh, three years, American presidential election nearly goes on for as long as that. But he, three years, um, there's no social media, there's no cameras, the message is not going to go very far. In fact, he preaches in the context of Israel in the Middle East. It's a small nation, it's about the size of Wales. Yeah, not saying anything about Wales here, I've you know, been a pastor too long, okay, but... Uh, it, it, it's like a, a nation that, a bit like Wales, has strong identity, though. Yeah, I'm Welsh. I'm a Jew. Yeah, that's his context. It's got Roman occupation, so a military zone, uh, the global power of the day. Uh, he's got a number of followers. And then what happens is that the end game works out differently to the, what these followers are expected. They expected he was going to come in the line of David and he was going to kick out the Romans and restate the kingdom. He's been talking about the kingdom, but they've misunderstood. And so what happens, he gets, 
he gets in trouble with the authorities. Why does he get in trouble with the authorities? Because he's claiming to be God. And that if you're doing that, you're blaspheming against God, which means you have the penalty of death. And so the Jewish leaders conspire with the Roman authorities and they crucify him. Now, the Romans used this as, this was a horrible way to die, but it was a very effective way to keep fear and control a large empire. And so he's killed. 33, with two thieves alongside him, in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. I mean, it must be the end of the story, mustn't it? I mean, it's not that, I mean, how do you start a global movement like that? His followers run for their lives. Um, one of their close in sort of inner three denies him and they run away and they're hiding. Why? Because they're fearful for their own life and also they're disappointed. But surely he was, he was the Messiah. He was going to establish it like David had. This is the context of the resurrection. So from that, that setting of the scene... How can we be confident that the resurrection took place? Well, I've got very quickly eight pieces of evidence. There are whole books written about this. I want to recommend. This one is superb. The Case for Christ. If you are serious about trying to find out whether Christianity is true or not, this would be a great book. It's by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. It looks at a lot of questions. I've read this book. It was raising questions I didn't even thought of about whether you could believe Jesus was who he said he was. And then he he interviews Lee Strobel, leading academics, medical people, lawyers, to look at the evidence. It's really worth a read. It's it's the type of thing you've got to read. You might read it and think, oh, I might have to read that chapter again. But it's superbly uh, put together. Um, And uh, some of the things that I'm going to, some of the points are are, are taken out of, of this book. The first is the empty tomb. Uh, now, there are lots of things about uh, the, the thing about the empty tomb that are raised up by people that don't believe in the resurrection. One is that Jesus didn't die. In fact, uh, he, didn't, he didn't die. So, you know, the reason the tomb was empty is he never died. Uh, now, I'm not a doctor, uh, but from the reading I've done, crucifixion was a pretty thorough way of killing someone. Now, remember, Jesus was beaten. Uh, he was then flogged. He was flogged. I mean, it would have ripped out your back the way the Romans flogged people, okay? Uh, I don't think any flogging is pleasant, but this would have ripped your back out. He then uh, carried uh, the cross, and then he was literally nailed to the cross. And what would happen is, uh, what you do is you suffocate. Uh, uh, We went to Dulwich Art Gallery on... uh, uh, Friday afternoon, I just thought my wife needed a little bit of art, so you know, and we saw, uh, I don't know who it was by, but a, a picture of Peter being crucified upside down, and church tradition says he wanted to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified as Jesus, uh, because on crucifixion you died of suffocation, you just couldn't hold yourself up, and so you literally died for lack of breath. And ultimately, the, to prove that it was dead, they pierced his body. And blood and water came out separately to show that he was dead. So it's clear he was dead. Another argument goes, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. Okay, now, I can't get my head around this one, but let's go for it for a while. So th- 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 they run for their lives. They get together. They say, what are we going to do? Well, I tell you, well, let's come up with a plan that he was raised from the dead. 
And uh, to prove that, we'll go and move the stone away, chase off the, the Romans that are guarding it, and uh, uh, we'll, um, we'll say he's, he's alive. We're still the body. Well, I found the story from um, what's known as the Watergate story. Yeah? Have you heard that? It's about the American president, Richard Nixon. Within his administration, there was a guy called Charles Colson. Now, we've got the American election coming up in 10 days, haven't we? Oh, Lord, please, okay. Now, at moments like this, you just know that there's a God in heaven, okay? And powers come and powers go. Uh, But um, what happened is Richard Nixon, in the 70s, Republican, uh, he nearly got impeached uh, to do with a break into the Democrats' offices. Uh, And... uh, Basically, in the end, he had to resign as the American president because it was found that he'd lied about what had gone on. Charles Colson was within the administration and ended up in prison for his part in the cover-up. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proves it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead and then proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten or tortured or stoned and many were put in prison. And they would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Another one is that the authorities nicked the body. This is a weak argument, friends. This is a really weak argument because the moment they go around saying, Jesus is raised from the dead, they go, here's the body. Here's the body. No, sorry, we've got the body. He's dead. How about the appearances to his disciples? 1 Corinthians summarizes it like this. Let's go back 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, next slide, please. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That means they've died. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all he appeared to me also as uh, to one abnormally Born. That's the Apostle Paul who wrote that. Here's another one. You see, if you were going to start a conspiracy and you were going to start a new world movement, okay, because the hero you'd followed being died, so you've got to come up with an idea, the one thing you wouldn't have done is started it by women being the first to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. I'm sorry, I'm not making a sexist comment here. I'm making a comment on the culture of the day. I mean, if you want to give something that... that is authentic, you have a well-respected man. Because in the culture of the day, a woman's testimony wouldn't hold in court. And so the very fact that the gospel writers write that it was women that first testified, it's quite a powerful uh, fact or piece of information towards the authenticity of the message. How about this one? This one always got me. The changed lives of the followers. What happened to this scared disappointed rabble that you could count like a handful, maybe 
70, maybe maximum 120. What happened to these men and women that were scattered to make them fearless proclaimers of a message? What happened post-Easter to the 12th or 70 or the 120? I concluded when I looked at it at some length when I was 19 for some six to nine months was that the easiest thing to believe is they met the risen Lord Jesus. It was easier to believe that than not. The fact that many of them would die, their willingness to die uh, for what they had experienced. Now actually people die for their faith all the time. We see it on our news. Suicide, martyrs. Uh, suicide bombers. So people die for their faith. So, you know, it's not so remarkable that these first believers die for the faith. Well, I would suggest it is. In a case for Christ, Lee Strobel puts it this way. It's been put to me this way. People will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they are true. But people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. This is where the closeness, the eyewitness closeness to the events of Easter and the resurrection are so critical. How about this one? The revolutionized lives of skeptics like James and Paul. James is Jesus' brother. He ends up being the apostle based in the Jerusalem church. So he leads the first big church with thousands of people in Jerusalem. I mean, in the Gospels, he thought Jesus was a bit mad. They thought he'd lost the plot. So what happened? How does he go from skeptic to leader of the church? What happens? What happens? How do you explain that? What about the Apostle Paul? Trouble, most of us are Christians here, or at least maybe grown up in a Christian context. We're so familiar with the Apostle Paul, we can lose the impact of the radical transformation. This is a, a Jew of Jews. He is trying to protect the Jewish religion, from this, this outbreak. It was known as a Jewish sect to start with. These kind of Jewish Christians. He said, we've got we to squash this. This is going to cause us real trouble. And it's going to break the integrity of the, the, the true Jewish faith. And so he went around and he started killing Christians. Yeah? And you know about that, the martyr of uh, Stephen. And, and then he, what happens to him? What takes someone that's killing Christians to become someone that writes a lot of the New Testament and proclaims it in the known world? What happens? Well, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to him. Well, that would explain it. And Jesus says, and what are you doing to me, my body? A few others, just to kind of uh, add in. Uh, each of these could be developed more. The radical change of social structure. Now, to really get this one, you have to understand the commitment of the Jewish nation to its ritual and its history. You even see that today, friends, in the Jewish culture. If you went, if we went to certain parts of London on Saturday, you would see it, particularly in North London. And so there was some, something happened, something radically happened that changed something that had been in place for centuries. Uh, the end of sacrifice. Why did that end? Well, there's been... As one sacrifice once and for all. The change of the application of the law. And how about this one, the moving of the day you go to worship from Saturday to Sunday. Why? Because Jesus was raised on the third day. Crucified Friday, Saturday, Sunday. 
So it changed. They, they, they're so ingrained in their Jewish, Jewish lifestyle, something happened so, so to impact even the day they went to worship. That's why we worship Sundays. Um, the sudden appearance of new rituals or what we call sacraments of baptism and communion. The kind of psychologists and historians would look at that and go, why did this appear? What's the chain reaction? What is the activating event? What's the cause and effect? Why did suddenly something around communion, something around baptism appear? Well, think about it for a moment. Communion. What's communion about? It's about remembering the bread as something that represents the body of Christ and the wine or juice representing the blood of Christ shed for us. Uh, and we celebrate it until he comes again. Or baptism, which uh, symbolizes death and resurrection. That if you get part- baptized as a believer, if you're a believer, you should be being baptized, by the way. Because at that point, you identify with Christ that, that he was Buried and he was raised, that he was crucified and he was risen. And you, as a follower of Jesus, have been buried in Christ and risen with him. And then lastly, the amazing emergence and growth of the church. It authenticates authenticates the the message. Um, Two weeks ago, I was telling you I was at this conference in Turkey. I had the privilege of meeting some underground Chinese pastors. Uh, pretty scary talking to the pressure they're un- under. Uh, but Deb and I had a meal with them. It's all via translation. And at the conference, one of them spoke. He spoke and he said, in China, each day, 10,000 people are coming to faith. Every day, 10,000. That was 10,000 yesterday, 10,000 today. And it's 10,000 tomorrow. It's by the time we get back together next week, it's either 70 or 80,000, depending if you count both Sundays. Just to keep you sort of... But think about it. That's just in China. In fact, it's happening so much that you can read it in the secular press now. You know, you can read articles in the Telegraph and there are whole books written about literally hundreds of... And millions of people in China following this risen Lord Jesus. What happened to this scattered group of believers who within 30 years in the rest of their life took the message to the known world and ultimately to the capital city of the world, Rome? Who would have thought that 300 years later that the Roman Empire would basically embrace the Christian faith as the religion of the Roman Empire? Who would have thought that though Jesus was crucified by Romans, that the Christian faith would outlast the Roman Empire? What happened? Well, what I discovered, and maybe uh, this is... Maybe a very small bit of evidence. But what I discovered was that when I put my trust in Jesus myself, I found it to be true. It moved from an intellectual bit of investigation from my head to my heart. And um, as Andrew said last week, we need a solution that deals with forgiveness and transformation. Well, I knew forgiveness. And many of you do as well. 
And I knew transformation. I worked on the shop floor. I went, left school at 16, bit of a dosser, worked in the printing industry for three years on the shop floor. Believe me, it was a bit earthy. And I was earthy, if I can put it that way, on Friday. And by Sunday, I'd had my own resurrection experience. Because on Monday morning, I'll tell you, I was different. Yeah? And so I have a question for you. Rather than taking questions today... I've got a question for you. What do you think? What do you believe? Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, it's a complete game changer. Not only does it provide a solution to all the problems that uh, we've been looking at, but it proves him to be the son of God. It, it proves that there is a man in heaven. Yeah? It believes that you can actually know forgiveness and transformation and the resurrection of the body, that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. There's a man in heaven, and you can be secure in the hope that you'll be there one day, and ultimately there's the resurrection of creation, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it all focuses in on whether Jesus was who he said he was, and was he raised from the dead. What do you think? What do you believe?